This episode is another one that focuses on Europe in the 1930s. This time period could be considered one of the building blocks of modern fashion. This was an important time period, especially with the war, and with war comes changes to fashion. If you studied fashion or fashion design like I have, you'll know that a lot of major designers' careers were launched during this time period. In the first episode of this second season, which is themed house, I talked about Lucien Lalonde of the House of Lalonde and how he defended French fashion from being taken over by Nazi Germany. In the second episode, I talked about Gabrielle Coco Chanel, of the House of Chanel and how she lived and loved among Nazis during World War II. In this episode, you'll hear about what German textile and clothing manufacturers were up to during this time, specifically one by the name of Hugo Boss. Welcome to Most Fashionable Crime, a fashion-related true crime podcast hosted by me, Taryn. Each season has a theme, and the theme of this season is house. If you want to be on trend, make sure to sign up for the newsletter, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and follow the podcast on Twitter at Most Fashionable, and on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Most Fashionable Crime. There is also a discussion group on Facebook and a Reddit community, which are both linked in the notes. As always, I want to give a special shout out to those that are forever trending, which are the supporters of this podcast. I appreciate you all so much, and there is a link in the notes if you'd like to support too. Three ways to support Most Fashionable Crime are to share this podcast with anyone who may like it or may not know yet they will like it. Leave a five-star rating and or a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and listen and engage on social media. While you're listening right now, go ahead and share that you are to your Instagram story. Unlike Coco Chanel, there is not much information about Hugo Boss, and I'm sure that's intentional. Again, unlike Chanel, Hugo Boss would be considered a nepotism baby when it comes to fashion if you were alive and well in 2022. Hugo Boss was born on July 8, 1885, in a city called Messingen, located in the kingdom of Württemberg, which is now a part of present-day Germany. With the industrial age, the town of Mazinga became home to various textile factories. Today, the city is referred to as Outlet City. And I'm sure you probably figured out it's because it has so many outlet clothing stores. Over 80, actually. This is not your regular outlet store. This is not the Tanger Outlets. At these outlets, you can cop Balenciaga, Gucci, Montclair, Bottega Veneta, and the list goes on. People travel from all over Germany and Europe to visit Outlet City. Mazingen is about two to two and a half hours away driving distance from Munich, for reference. See for yourself by typing Outlet City Mazingen, and Mazingen is spelled M-E-T-Z-I-N-G-E-N into Instagram or TikTok. Mazingen would hold a significant place in Hugo's life, career, and the state of the brand today. Hugo Boss was the youngest of five children born to Louise and Heinrich Boss. There is not much information about his early life or his personal life, but I do know that he apprenticed as a merchant before serving in the military from 1903 until 1905. After his time in the military, he went to work in a weaving mill in Constance. I couldn't find any information about his schooling, education, or career, and it appears that he didn't have the need to be as driven as some people because in 1908, he took over the linen and lingerie shop in his hometown that was owned by his parents. I mentioned that Hugo was the youngest of five children. However, out of the five, he and his sister were the only ones that lived past infancy. I'm sure he was chosen to take over the family business because he was the male heir. 
1908 was also the year Hugo married his wife, Anna Katharina Freisinger, and at some point they had a daughter. Hugo was called to arms in 1914, of course because of the start of World War I. He served the duration of the war and he ended how he started as a corporal. Sometime after the war ended, Hugo decided to start his own clothing company in 1923, and the next year he opened a clothing factory, and both of these were in his hometown. He couldn't open the clothing factory on his own, so he received the support of two clothing manufacturers, both of Mazingan, and I assume that they came on as partners of the company, at least at first. This is the start of the brand Hugo Boss. I don't know what happened to the linen and lingerie shop that he took over from his parents, but it appeared Hugo decided to set his sights on something much bigger. In case of confusion, if I say Hugo, I'm referring to the person, and if I say Hugo Boss or Boss, I'm referring to the fashion house slash clothing brand slash clothing manufacturing company in this episode. Hugo Boss then is not what we know it as today. Back then, the clothing company manufactured by hand basic everyday apparel, nothing that would be considered high-end. Hugo Boss employed between 20 and 30 seamstresses in the first few years of establishment, and they made rain jackets, shirts, work clothes, sportswear, and traditional German loading jackets. The brand attracted the lights of Rudolf Born, a textile distributor based in Munich. Rudolf Born placed the company's biggest order yet, making it their highest commission. The order he placed was either entirely or partially for brown shirts. Perhaps Hugo was unaware that these brown shirts were being made for the National Socialist Party or better known as the Nazi Party. By 1929, six years after Hugo started Hugo Boss, things started to spiral. Enter the Wall Street crash of 1929 and the Great Depression. Germany was one of the countries most affected by this due to their dependence on foreign lending and having also to pay war reparations. The textile industry, of course, took a hit. And with that, the Hugo Boss clothing manufacturing company was facing bankruptcy by 1931. Through negotiating with creditors, Hugo was able to keep the factory running and retain six sewing machines. 1931 also happens to be the year that Hugo joined the Nazi party and became a sponsor of the Schutzstaffel, which was the major paramilitary organization that was under the Nazi party and Hitler. After he joined the Nazi party, the Nazi party began to place orders with his company. By the third quarter of 1932, the Hugo Boss clothing factory saw its biggest boost in their business when they were hired to produce the new all-black Schutzstaffel uniforms that were designed by Carl Diebisch and Walter Heck. The company produced those all-black uniforms I just mentioned, along with the brown Schmetterlein shirts and the black and brown uniforms for the Hitler Youth. The company brought in 38,260 Reichsmarks, or $26,993 in U.S. dollars in 1932. Between 1934 and 1935, Hugo ran advertisements claiming that his company had been the supplier for National Socialist uniforms since 1924. It is most likely that the actual year is 1928. Hugo was a serious Nazi and he joined various groups such as the German Labor Front and the Reich Air Protection Association prior to World War II and the National Socialist People's Warfare after the start of the war. Following the end of the war, Hugo tried to claim that he only joined the Nazi party to save his business. But it's hard to believe that claim when you look at all of the material presented. 
1938, the clothing manufacturing company shifted its focus to producing the Wearmont uniforms and later produced the Waffen SS uniforms as well. These were the uniforms worn by the Nazi German military while in the field. While the business grew, it never became a huge company during this time period. Once World War II began, people left the textile industry to pursue higher earning jobs in industries such as engineering. You might be surprised to learn that the company saw sales of over 3,300,000 Reichmarks in 1941, despite the decline in workforce. Of course, with the war underway, there was a huge demand for uniforms, but who was making them? Well, Hugo employed, if that's even the correct word, Hugo had 140 forced laborers working in his company. The first forced laborers started there in 1940 and they were from Bielsko, Poland, which was an area known for its textile industry. There are also 40 French prisoners of war that did a stint with the company as well from October 1940 until April 1941. At first, the forced laborers, at least the men, lived in sheds on the company's property, while the women lived with local families and this went on until 1943. In 1943, a camp had been erected for Eastern European workers to segregate them from the local residents. In a paper I read for this episode, it states that Hugo likely treated the forced laborers quote-unquote fairly. But can a forced laborer really be treated fairly? There were other workers in the factory that weren't forced laborers, and the paper I read does say that they all worked the same amount of hours and they were provided with a midday meal. It does not appear that Hugo had a direct relationship with Hitler, but he did admire him and kept a picture of them together in his apartment. In April 1945, Messinga became occupied by the French, therefore making it a zone occupied by the Allied forces. Hugo had to undergone denazification, which is the process of bringing the leaders of the National Socialist regime in Germany to justice and of purging all elements of Nazism from public life. And this was carried out between 1945 and 1948, primarily. In his first ruling, he was fined 100,000 Deutschmarks or 70,553 US dollars and he was also declared incriminated. Hugo was considered to be an activist and a supporter and beneficiary of National Socialism. Apparently, this was the second highest punishment. With the judgment, he was no longer able to vote, nor was he able to run a business. He later appealed this ruling and was given the lesser category of follower, which means that now he was considered to be someone that complied with the regime, but wasn't actively engaged in their politics. Now that Hugo was no longer able to run his business, he gave over the ownership and operations of the company to his son-in-law, Eugene Holy. Hugo F. Boss died on August 9th, 1948 from an infection caused by a tooth abscess that could not be treated. As you can see, Hugo was not a fashion designer. But with his son-in-law at the head of the company, it started moving towards what we know Hugo Boss is today. Two years after the passing of Hugo, in 1950, the company received its first order to produce men's suits. And by 1960, the company sold ready-made suits. And the rest is history. Not really. According to the history page on the Hugo Boss website, once the company learned of its history of using forced laborers, they made a contribution to the international fund set up to compensate former forced laborers. Hugo Boss, the company, is still headquartered in Mazingan and still does a portion of its manufacturing out of the town as well. 
Head over to the YouTube channel to watch this week's video of me discussing the reasons why brands like Chanel and Boss didn't rebrand to steer away from the shameful things its founders did. Thank you for listening to Most Fashionable Crime. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss anything. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and leave a five-star rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All of my sources are linked in the notes. In case you're wondering, this podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Taryn. All the music you heard in this episode is from Epidemic Sound.